Now I'm very pleased to be introducing Dr. Pamela Starr. Dr. Starr is the director of the U.S.-Mexico Network, an associate professor of international relations, and a senior fellow at the Center on Public Diplomacy at the University of Southern California. Prior to joining the USC faculty, she was a senior Latin American analyst at, a, at the Eurasia Group and a professor of Latin American political, political economy in Mexico. She is the author of many articles and has spoken at the World Economic Forum, the IMF, the State Department, the Inter-American Development Bank, and more. Please give a warm welcome to Dr. Pamela Starr. Thank you and good evening. It's my distinct pleasure to first introduce to you and then have a conversation with Ambassador Arturo Sarocan. Um, the ambassador is a career diplomat since 1994, and he's held a long list of foreign ministry posts, including a previous stint in Washington and a series of posts associated with uh, the U.S.-Mexico bilateral relationship and with counter-narcotics and with organized crime. In December of 2000, he was appointed the Chief of Staff for Policy Planning for the Secretary of Foreign Affairs, and in February of 2003, President Fox appointed him Consul General of Mexico in New York, where he served until February of 2006. At that time, he took a leave of absence from the Foreign Ministry to, um, for, from, from February to November of 2006 to participate in then-candidate Felipe Calderón's presidential campaign. He served as campaign coordinator coordinator for international affairs and international spokesman for Felipe Calderón, which in full disclosure is when Arturo and I first met. He was then the coordinator for international affairs during the president-elect's transition team before being appointed by President Calderón as Mexican ambassador in Washington. Moving slightly back in time, after completing his undergraduate studies in Mexico, the ambassador received a Fulbright and a Ford Foundation fellowship to study for a master's degree in, in U.S. foreign policy at the Johns Hopkins University in Washington, D.C. He's written a number of articles in both Mexican and foreign journals. He has been a lecturer at a number of universities, and he's also a pre professor where I used to teach in Mexico, the Instituto Tecnológico Autónomo de México. I had to throw out that little bit of propaganda. <laughs> so welcome, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you. I thought I'd start our conversation with a couple of questions about the uh, status of the overall relationship between the United States and Mexico. During his initial meeting with President Obama in January, President Calderón stated his desire to establish a strategic partnership with the United States. Um, yesterday, in an interview with Pat Morrison on KPC Radio here in Los Angeles, you said that you were encouraged by the signs that you've seen in the bilateral relationship and from the Obama administration thus far, and you felt that two countries were positioned to, if I hope I quoted you correctly, to propel the relationship forward. Yet at least twice in the fairly recent past, the two countries seem to be poised to embark on a, on a new era in the relationship, such a strategic partnership, only to find that the path was disrupt, disrupted by events. What's different now? Are we really poised on, uh, on, on the, the, the brink or on the precipice of a truly strategic relationship? I think we are. Um, you can never take control of exogenous factors that can uh, crack down on any expectations like what happened 
in 2001 when President, then Presidents Bush and Fox. I think it started a serious dialogue between both countries to try and figure ways in which to deal with one of the pressing issues of the bilateral relationship, which was immigration. Um, President, Fox, uh, President Bush did his first trip uh, as president to Mexico, February of 2001. Um, Vicente Fox did his first state visit to the United States, the first state visit that George W. Bush received as president. He left Washington, D.C. on September the 7th, 2001. And four days later, um, all that had been discussed basically disappeared. Um, let's be very clear about this. Um, given what's on the geostrategic radar screen of the White House these days, whether it's Iran or whether it's Iraq or whether it's the Middle East, Afghanistan, potentially North Korea, Latin America will not be a priority or a top priority of the administration. We have to be very clear about this. But this does not mean that I think there is an administration which, headed by a president, has decided to invest serious political capital in trying to move this relationship forward. Will best laid plans be disrupted by other events? It is possible. But I think that both presidents, I think the fact that despite what many of us had heard that then-President-elect Obama would try to not uh, waste time in the run-up to his swearing-in ceremony by meeting with foreign dignitaries. I think the fact that he met President Calderon a week before he was sworn into office and that he did so by going to Mexican territory, the Mexican Cultural Institute in Washington, D.C., I think was a very important gesture by the president of signaling his commitment and his willingness to invest serious political capital in the relationship. So for you, the, the large thing that's different is the nature of the individual in the White House as opposed to broader characteristics of the United States and of Mexico? I, I think it has to do with individuals. Um, despite that historians hate history written around individuals or specific events, um, I think that in this case, the fact that you have two men who are basically the same generation, President Obama is a year older than President Calderon, uh, we also joke that they're both lefties and both their wives are lawyers and they got married the same year, um, which provides for some very interesting synergies there. But I, I think that there is a generational, a generational thing that has, that has developed between these two men. But I also think that increasingly, and you can see it in Congress, Pamela, um, there is a growing understanding that these two countries will fail together or succeed together. And where you see it most powerfully today is in how we go about fighting organized crime. When the Bush administration with the Calderon administration, which had just come into office in 2006, December of 2006, started discussing how we could take on drugs and thugs, we developed what is today called the Media Initiative, which was a paradigmatic shift in the way we go about fighting drugs. Basically, it is underpinned by the fact that these two countries have finally recognized that finger pointing is of no use, that that old era in which the United States would wag its finger and say, Mexico is the springboard of all the drugs coming to the United States, and Mexico would conveniently retort, if we're the springboard, you're the swimming pool. That era, I think, is behind us, and both sides have understood that we need to work together. 
That paradigm was developed by a Republican administration, and yet today, the standard bearers of what we're trying to do and achieve in strengthening and deepening our cooperation are the Democratic leadership of the House and the Senate. They have made the priority of deepening and widening cooperation with Mexico their own. And I think that this is what has changed, that is that there is increasingly um, a, a, a profound understanding that to, to, to be able to address and tackle the host of issues that these two countries face by virtue of sharing a 3,000 kilometer border, we will have to work together. And I think this is opening a window of opportunity for the personalities to step in and provide the sensitive direction that I think bureaucracy sometimes need. Let me push you a little bit further on your thinking on the bilateral relationship, just to show you that I actually did some research here. Um, I read an article of yours that uh, you published in America's Quarterly in the fall of last year. And in that article, you argued that for the United States, having Mexico on its southern border is a boon rather than a burden. Yet, I think when most Americans look south, despite the fondness that the majority of Americans feel for Mexico, they see a country characterized by violence and insecurity, corruption and legal impunity, poverty and inequality, and a government that continues to struggle with dealing with these issues. So why should Americans see living next door to Mexico as a boon? First of all, because I think Americans need to understand that Mexico is what it is today because we come from where we come from. Mexico has slowly transited from being a less than democratic regime, in fact, a semi-authoritarian regime, um, to a country that is slowly, sometimes haphazardly, two steps forward, one, side, one, one step sideways, moving into full-fledged democracy. It is a country that shares the same fundamental values that the United States has. It is, a, is, it a, is, it, is it a country that is hobbled by many of the challenges that it has inherited from its past? Of course. And um, given that last year in the presidential election of this country, furry mammals and lipstick became so in vogue, um, this is one pig that I'm not going to even try and put lipstick on. Corruption is a challenge in Mexico. Um, it is a challenge that we have inherited, I'd even say, throughout the centuries. Um, but slowly, I think Mexico and Mexicans are trying to take on these challenges. I think that... Uh, there are no two countries more important to each other's well-being, security, than Mexico and the United States by virtue of that 3,000-kilometer border. Um, and I think that the way these two countries, from a history that is still sometimes tainted by distrust and by paranoia and sometimes by misguided views of what sovereignty is and what nationalism isn't, have moved in leaps and bounds um, since NAFTA was signed in 1993. I still remember, uh, and I always share this with, with the audiences that I speak to, when then-President Miguel de la Madrid, the president that ruled Mexico in the 80s, traveled on his first official trip to Singapore, which was then sort of the, the darling of the international community because of the profound transformation that had taken place in a not very democratic nation, but certainly one that had found a path to economic prosperity. Um, President La Madrid sits down with Lee Kuan Yew, and Lee Kuan Yew, in the conversation, asks President La Madrid, Mr. President, remind me how many kilometers of border do you have with the United States? 
And President La Madrid answered, unfortunately, 3,000. Presently, Kuan Yu paused for a second, turned over and said, Mr. President, what would Singapore give for one kilometer of border with the United States? I don't think that today any Mexican president or politician would dare say what Miguel de la Madrid said in the 80s. There's been a profound transformation of how Mexico engages with its northern neighbor. And in many ways, I think, this has been a product of how our two countries have come to understand that we are tied at the hip and that a rising tide can lift boats on both sides of the border and that there is the opportunity for both our nations that are increasingly becoming transnational and you can see it in this city day in and day out because of our communities that live and cross-pollinate one another constantly. So I, I do think there are unique opportunities. Um, I'll give you another piece of memor memorabilia. When I was um, Chief of Staff of Policy Planning in the Foreign Ministry, a new Israeli ambassador had come into town, Mexico. And as all ambassadors do when we arrive at a new capital city, we pick up the phone and ask to pay courtesy visits to government officials that we want to meet. And the Israeli ambassador called me and said, can I come and visit? And of course, we sat down, we started talking about policy in the Middle East, and we very quickly segued into uh, the relationship between Mexico and the United States. And he, as most of you in this room know, um, room in this magnificent hall, um, there's this old saying in Mexico, which is sometimes attributed to Porfirio Diaz, a 19th century Mexican president that goes, poor Mexico, so close to the United States and so far away from God. And the Israeli ambassador, when he mentioned this, said, the only thing, the thing that I can think of is it should be the other way around. It should be poor Israel, so close to God and so far away from the United States. <laughs> and and what, was, what was underlying his little joke was that despite the challenges that we face day in and day out, this uh, contiguous land border that we share provides unique opportunities for both our peoples. Thank you very much. Um, let me turn now to some of the issues in the bilateral relationship that are of most concern to, to Americans, um, beginning first with uh, the question of immigration. Yesterday, President Obama, as you know, met with congressional leaders to discuss strategies for advancing a comprehensive immigration reform. The outcome of that meeting shows, once again, that while Republicans and Democrats agree that the U.S. migration system is broken, they can't agree on how to fix it. Um, Republicans made very clear that they will not support any legislation that does not include temporary workers. Meanwhile, the Democrats, and seemingly including President Obama, are increasingly hesitant to defy strong human union opposition to such a temporary workers program, especially when the unemployment rate is over 9% and rising. If Congress were to approve the democratic version of this legislation that would include uh, a process for regularizing the status of the approximately six to eight million uh, undocumented, undocumented Mexican migrants that are currently working in the United States and also including more effective measures to prevent new undocumented migrants from finding work in the United States but exclude any provision for temporary workers, the impact on Mexico would clearly be significant. 
uh, the Mexican economy would have to create roughly 50% more jobs each year than it is currently doing to absorb the about 200 to 500,000 uh, individuals who currently migrate a year. Fixing this or providing these jobs is obviously not something that can happen easily um, or quickly in Mexico. So given that, what is Mexico willing to do to make a temporary workers program seem more practicable, to make it seem more manageable and thus more acceptable to reticent members of Congress? First of all, this, this is going to be a debate that is going to be either won or lost in the United States. And there is precious little that Mexico can do in affecting that internal debate. What I think we can do is try to underscore why a temporary worker program is a unique component of a comprehensive immigration reform approach. For starters, because the only way that you can bring in the constituencies that will ensure that there is passage of a bill on the Hill is if you bind them all together. And the only way you're going to bind them all together is that A, it's not going to be perfect, and nobody's going to get everything that he or she wants, but that there's something in it for each one of those different constituencies which makes them co-stakeholders to the bill. What I'm trying to get at is that, in my humble opinion, if you don't put a temporary worker program into the mix, you're certainly not going to get the votes that you need to get whatever other bill you put out there without a temporary worker program component. It is a sine qua non to be able to move it forward. Beyond the politics or the uh, logistics of getting a bill approved in Congress and how you cobble it together, a temporary worker program is critically important if we're to handle the challenge of labor flows across our border. Why? Because contrary to what some pundits would like to suggest out there, it's not that more and more Mexicans are crossing the border every year legally into the United States. The level has more or less stayed constant for the past 10 years at approximately 350, 400,000 per year. What has changed is that less and less Mexicans who've made it across are going back. That is, the circularity of the labor movement across our two nations has been broken. What used to happen in the past is if I crossed the border illegally, I would probably be able to do it on my first attempt and without having to shelve out a single dollar to a smuggler to get me across the border. I would go to Washington State, participate in the apple harvest season, maybe then move to Long Island to do some roofing, and then over Christmas or the holidays, I would go back to Mexico. And I would do exactly the same thing the next year. There was a circularity to that labor movement. As a result of Operation Gatekeeper and Operation Guardian during the Clinton administration, and then even more forcefully as a result of post 9-11 border security policies, this circularity was broken. That individual who was able to cross on his first attempt was now able to cross on his sixth or seventh or eighth attempt. And instead of being able to just cross over, he's now having to shell out anywhere between $3,000 and $5,000 to human smuggling operations. So the incentives of going back and forth as they used in the past have completely disappeared. So once you're in on this side, you stay put. And the next step is that if you can't go back and forth for Christmas or the holidays, you bring in your family. So what has been rising dramatically in the past 10 years is the total numbers of Mexican undocumented migrants in this country who are not going back. 
the only way you're going to bring, be able to break this cycle and the future cycle of temporary worker seeking a job in the United States is if you inject a temporary worker program into the system. I know it's not palatable for the unions, but if we can't convince the different actors that you need to bring in a path to regularization, greater enforcement, more security on the border, and a temporary worker program, it's not going to fly and you're not going to get the votes to get it approved. Let me push a little bit further on that because while I, I agree completely that part of the reason that we are seeing less circularity in the movement of migrants across the border is the enforcement issue, there's also been a shift in the job market in the United States mm -hmm. and the kinds of jobs they're going into. And the jobs they're going into now tend to have less circularity in them. There are jobs where employers want them to come and stay for several years. So let me push you a little bit harder on what Mexico is really willing to do to send the message to reticent Democrats that a temporary worker program is actually something that can work for you. Is Mexico, for example, willing to um, institute measures that will help uh, encourage Mexicans to return to Mexico when the time period of their temporary, work, temporary uh, stay in the United States is up? Is Mexico willing to institute new measures that will limit the flow, undocumented flow, across the Mexican border, not only of Mexicans, but of non-Mexicans as well. This is an issue that we'll only be able, we will only be able to deal with when and if we have a temporary worker program. That's when we do engage in a bilateral negotiation process per se, which is how do we make a temporary worker program functional. And there will have to be ways in which both governments will have to ensure that individuals who want to come back and forth in a legal, orderly, transparent fashion, tapping into temporary worker program, actually do go back. And we will have to work ways in which we need to do this. For example, when comprehensive immigration reform was being discussed in 2007, the last big failure of comprehensive immigration reform to move forward, there was discussion, I'm sure that some of you in this room remember, uh, of what was then called a touchback clause. What this means in the jargon of all of us in the streets is that they would seek in the process to regularize individuals and then bring them back through a temporary worker program, that those individuals would have to leave the United States, get documents, and come back through a temporary worker program. Therefore, the touchback clause. Now, for all of us in a city like LA, we all know that the 12 million documented migrants living in this country approximately, they're not all from Mexico. Probably anywhere between 7 to 8 million are probably from Mexico, the rest are from other parts of the world. Is a Bangladeshi really going to go back to Bangladesh to go to the U.S. Embassy or the U.S. Consulate to get a visa and then come back to the United States? All of us knew that this was probably very unlikely. So this, I think, opened, when this was being discussed, the possibility that Mexico could work with the United States to ensure that people that just couldn't cross the border on land could go to Mexico, get their documents in a U.S. Consulate in Mexico, and then come back from Mexico to the United States. The end game, Pamela, for Mexico, regardless of what the immigration package looks like, if it is to be approved on Capitol Hill, is twofold. We have to ensure that every single Mexican that crosses the border into the United States does so, does so through a designated, designated port of entry, and that every single Mexican 
crossing into the United States does so legally. If we can't do that, it's going to be very tough to convince the American public and American Congress that Mexico is a co-stakeholder to a system which is functional, which is humane, which is orderly, which is legal, and which respects the rights of people crossing the border. And that is the same challenge we face as we look south, because Mexico is no longer just a country of emigrants. We have become a country of immigrants coming for jobs in the coffee plantations in Chiapas from Central America, but we've also become, more importantly, a transit point of immigrants from South America and Central America moving through Mexico on their way to the United States. And this poses unique challenges also for our domestic legislation, for our policy of ensuring that we are respecting the human rights of those crossing Mexican territory, because it's very easy for Mexico to wag its finger at the United States and demand respect for the human rights of its migrants. But if we can't do the same for the migrants of Central American nations transiting through Mexico, our moral standing is greatly diminished. Let me change topics to something um, equally challenging, the issue of security. We all know that Mexico has a long-standing problem with organized crime. Um, President Calderón's decision during the first days of his administration to move against the drug cartels was not only commendable and valiant, it was necessary and, quite frankly, long overdue. Yet the explosion of violence, the murders, the kidnappings, the extortion, the armed, the armed, excuse me, the armed robberies that has accompanied this offensive and evidence that some of this violence is flowing over into the U.S. Um, across the border obviously makes very Americans quite uncomfortable. Further, the admission by key government officials involved in uh, the security ministries that they never expected such a violent reaction from the cartels raises questions in our minds here in the United States, and I have, I have to assume, I have to imagine, in minds in Mexico about the government's ability to succeed in this endeavor. So with that uh, preface, what exactly is the government's strategy? And how does the Calderon government define success? The strategy is three-pronged, and in many ways, it defines success. For starters, there is no victory in the fight against drugs in the traditional way that you define an armed conflict or a soccer game. Because A, the demand for drugs is inelastic, and as long as there is, as long as Mexico sits next to the largest consumer market of illicit drugs in the world, that is still going to drive the traffic and production of illicit substances. But what is Mexico trying to achieve? A, that we bring down the levels of violent related deaths in Mexico. And in no way with what I'm about to say here am I trying to minimize what's at stake in Mexico or what has been going on in Mexico. But let me give you some numbers that I think are important to put the violence that is taking place in Mexico into context. For every 100,000 inhabitants today, you have 11 drug-related deaths, in violent deaths in Mexico. Today in the United States, for every 100,000 inhabitants, you have 10 violent-related deaths. The city of New Orleans, just the city of New Orleans, has 33 
violent deaths for every 100,000 inhabitants. The city of Caracas has 90-90 violent deaths per every 100,000 inhabitants. Is the ambassador trying to brush the violence under the rug? No. But what I am trying to point out is that A, it is not generalized. It is a direct response to the willingness of the state to roll back and shut down organized crime. It is a direct consequence of trafficking patterns and trafficking lanes and staging grounds being disrupted and of drug syndicates fighting against one another. There's a figure that has been thrown out there regarding the number of deaths that we have seen in Mexico since the Mexican government unleashed this rollback strategy to push back on organized crime. 10,000-something violent deaths in Mexico in two years. Now, of all those deaths, 80% of those deaths are drug traffickers, either killed by the state or that have been killed by rival drug gangs. 12% are of police officers and members of the armed forces who've been killed in line of duty. And 8% are, are unfortunately and tragically people who were in the wrong place at the wrong time. So what we're trying to achieve is bring down the level of violence being unleashed by the drug syndicates against society. The second driver of what will mean success is contrary to what you do when you're trying to promote business in a country or foreign direct investment, we are raising the opportunity cost of doing business in Mexico. We're trying to make it so prohibitively expensive for the drug syndicates to operate in Mexico that they pack up and go somewhere else. It's as simple as that. That is why, with the United States and other regional partners, we have to develop a holistic approach to take on the challenge of drugs. Because Mexican success is breeding trafficking patterns in other parts of the region uh, which is creating huge public security challenges for nations that until two years ago were not seeing Mexican drug traffickers or transnational crime operating in their countries. So we have to develop a holistic approach. The third prong of what we're trying to do is that we ensure that we can transit from having drugs and organized crime be a national security threat to becoming a law and order and public security challenge, like the one you have in the United States. People get killed in the United States every year because of a deal gone wrong. It is a law and order challenge, and that is where we need to transit this in Mexico. Is there a magic bullet? Is there a silver bullet that will make the drug traffickers disappear from one day to the next? Of course not. But what we're trying to do is to fundamentally disrupt their modus operandi so that we bring down the violence we make sure that it's not a national security problem and that we can disrupt Mexico as the preferred transit point of these drugs either originating in Mexico, basically marijuana, or originating somewhere else, cocaine, and transiting through Mexico on their way to the United States. Given that definition of success, um, specifically the third prong, where you're trying to translate what is a clear national security threat into a problem of law and order, you very obviously need to have very effective, well-trained, well 
equipped, etc., police, and also a well-trained judiciary that can handle these individuals when they come through the legal system. Um, we all know these are areas where, unfortunately, uh, Mexican institutions are somewhat lagging. Um, so it brings me back to the initial question of how do you achieve success when it seems to me you're missing a very, very vital tool in this process and a tool that will take a generation to develop? It, it, will, it will entail that, A, there will continue to be a Churchillian quota of blood, sweat, and tears which Mexico is putting into the mix. It will entail that one of the most critical reforms that President Calderón managed to get approved in Congress, which is a judicial reform, which will fundamentally transform the way justice is applied in Mexico by moving Mexico from a Napoleonic code of justice to a system like the one you have in the United States of accusatorial oral trials. And that transition will certainly help to bolster the ability of justice being served. But we also have to reinvent and in some cases rebuild civilian institutions. And this is the painful decision that Mexico had to take when President Calderón decided to put in the armed forces a stopgap measure while civilian institutions and police forces were being rebuilt. You have the Posa Comitatus Act in the United States for a good reason. Armed forces aren't trained to do law enforcement. It's not their mission statement. And it's the same in Mexico. So what we need to do is as quickly as we can rebuild those civilian institutions, train those new federal police forces, which by the way, for the first time, are being trained by universities with the government. It's the first time that UNAM, Ibero, Tec de Monterrey, and Politecnico are working hand in hand with the Ministry of Public Security in training these guys, providing the curricula, and ensuring that we're building a modern and as incorruptible as possible police force. Now, are, are they going to be absolutely bulletproof to corruption? No. Not when you have anywhere from six to eight billion dollars of bulk cash crossing the border from the United States into Mexico every year. I knew you'd fit that in. <laughs> Um, we have one final question um, for our part of the conversation before we turn it over to the question and answer. Um, when, and, I, and, and I, I, at the risk of dealing with one more problem, I'm going to deal with one more perceived problem that Americans see when they look southward. We tend to see a country, when we look southward, that has enormous potential. Um, but it's a country that is seemingly unable to make the political decisions that are needed to unleash that potential. Uh, the executive seems to be constantly stymied by an opposition-dominated Congress that's focused on short-term political gain. Uh, powerful business interests and union leaders um, seem to be dedicated to blocking needed economic reforms. Uh, it seems every time we turn around, there's another street protest and, of course, the continuing problem of organized crime. Meanwhile, in Mexico, one hears concerns that the president seems to have lost the initiative. He seems to have lost his way in the presidency. And that potentially following the July 5th midterm elections in which the president's party, the BAN, is assumed that it will lose um, a significant number of seats in the National Congress, um, that potentially President Calderón will become a lame duck. 
What does that mean for the last three years of the Calderon presidency? Is Mexico becoming ungovernable? I don't think so. Um, for starters, I think that Mexico has had everything and the kitchen th sink thrown at it uh, in these past months. The only thing that we're missing is locusts falling from the sky. Um, but I think, and I'll give you a very clear example, H1N1. I think the way the Mexican government responded to this new strain of a virus and transparently, effectively, efficiently communicated what was going on, contained it at a huge economic cost to Mexico, was not only a success story in terms of institutional capabilities, but was matched by something equally or even more important, that you have, that you have a civil society that responded to what the government was trying to do. Try shutting down a city the size of Mexico City with 15, 16 million people, even if there's a virus. And in 24 hours, the government put in place a program which was followed by the citizenry, and we were able to very quickly, in 24 hours, shut down commerce, churches, schools, stadiums. And this really provided a boost to Mexico's ability to take it on, to take the virus on. I think this is a huge success story of how Mexico's institutions and how Mexico's civil society have come a long way. Is Mexico Switzerland? No. <laughs> but then the response is, well, if you want, if you want a system which, in which Congress isn't challenging the power of the executive, you can go back to what we had before 2000. In many ways, you're getting what you wished for. You wanted a democracy. Mexico is moving towards a democracy. And there are pains in becoming a democracy. We're seeing some of that. And I think we will continue to see it. I don't think that the outcome in July is going to fundamentally modify the balance of power in Congress. I, I, I think that the outcome will more or less be what it is today. There may be some changes here and there. Some governorships may be retaken by, by the president's party. Um, I do believe that increasingly, important sectors in all political parties in Mexico understand that the status quo ante cannot stand, and that they need to work with the president in ensuring that we can move this country forward, and that some of the reforms that were very quickly approved in the first year or so of the president's administration, reforms that, by the way, uh, laid on the president's desk, on the previous president's desk for six years and never went anywhere, can continue to build up steam in the latter part of the period. So no, I would obviously not agree with the fact that we're facing a lame duck situation in Mexico, much as you face a lame duck situation here in the United States when the president in the, is in the last leg of his administration. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, good evening, folks. Um, Susan, good Test, test. Test, test, test. Sam. Thank you for joining us. We will now open it up to you guys for question and questions and answers. There's two of us going around with a microphone. Just raise your hand and wait for one of us to get to you. If you could please state your name before your question. Thank you. Uh, hi there. Uh, my name is Jesus Hermosillo. Um, I was born in the United States, but my family is from Mexico. And I get to visit Mexico quite often. And I'm always astonished by the immense inequality uh, between the rich and the poor. And I was, as I was hearing you talk about the three-pronged strategy to fight uh, organized crime in Mexico, 
I was thinking, why not add a fourth prong to that strategy and uh, try to uh, reduce the inequality that there is? Uh, it seems like uh, the Calderon government is intent on, protecting, on helping the rich protect their wealth while the poor uh, continue to live in destitution. I would certainly not agree with the last part of your, your um, assertion. I would certainly agree with the fact that um, unless you create economic opportunities and grow at a much faster rate of growth than what we've been growing in the past uh, decade, which has been good but not sexy enough, we've been growing at a 3.2, 3.4 annual average, with the exception of this year, which all the countries in the world are taking quite a beating. Um, if you don't create economic opportunities, that's going to become uh, a magnet for people going into organized crime. Um, that's certainly a, a, a challenge that I think is there. Um, I, I, I completely agree that the Mexican government has to create economic opportunities. I, I would obviously dispute the last bit of the assertion because I do think that Mexico today uh, has one of what has become the landmark programs for extreme poverty alleviation anywhere in the world. And it's a program called Oportunidades which is providing micro-credit, micro-lending to the female head of household. It's given to her, not to him. Contingent on two things happening. <laughs> that the children are getting their vaccine and medical attention on time, and that the kids are enrolled in school with a passing grade. If any of these two criteria are not met, the micro-credits are, are, are withheld. And this, in the last six or seven years, has allowed 30 million Mexicans to leave the lowest percentile of extreme poverty in Mexico. There is a commitment to fostering economic growth in our nation. If we can't do it, Mexico will not be able to grow and compete. So I obviously would not agree with the fact that uh, the president is simply interested with protecting some against the majority of the nation. Muy buenas tardes uh, y bienvenido, señor embajador. Yo soy el Gracias. profesor Armando Vázquez Ramos. I'm Professor Armando Vázquez Ramos from the uh, Chicano Studies Program at Cal State Long Beach. Uh, my question is twofold. Uh, on the one hand, we have obvious links with the cartels and government, military in Mexico in the drug trade. And on the other hand, we have an increased call for legalization including here in California and throughout the United States. Um, in your opinion, is it time now for us to begin to hear the message that even the founding scholar that created the, uh, the, the we had here a year ago to open Universidad de Guadalajara in Los Angeles, Carlos Fuentes, calling upon, to really look upon the option of legalization? I always joke that uh, politicians and flies, in this case diplomats and flies, have one thing in common, and that's we can both get killed by a newspaper. So I'll try and tread <laughs> carefully around this one. Um, look, this, this is a serious debate that has, been, has to be taken seriously. And there are very strong voices on one side who argue that this would be a huge mistake. And there are very strong voices on the other side who argue that the only way to defang organized crime of what is, is, is its, its most important tool, money, is to decriminalize drugs. 
What I, as a Mexican of my generation, would probably say on this subject, and I would probably stop at this, is that there should be no taboos. Debates should be had, and they should be flushed out in the open. Saying that something is a taboo, or saying that this debate was, took place 20 years ago and the result was X, is not an excuse. For starters, because if it happened 20 years ago, it's highly likely that the reality of today has nothing to do with what was going on 20 years ago. And second, because there should not be taboos. Let's have a debate, let's have a serious discussion, and if the decision or if the result of that debate is that decriminalizing could be of use, so good. If the decision is it will not serve the purpose, then we figure that one out. But I think this debate should take place. Good, good evening, Mr. Ambassador. My name is uh, James Roberson. I was just curious, back to, to a security issue, as to what would you, from your hearts of hearts, what would you tell an American and or any other foreigner that was looking to travel to Mexico um, and uh, be able to enjoy uh, Mexico as, as it was uh, prior to all these different security issues? Where do you want your air ticket delivered? <laughs> um, look, I think that whenever one travels abroad, you need to take necessary precautions. You need to know where you go. And there are parts in this city where you would not venture out at night. And, and the same is true of certain areas in Mexico which are today being hit by the violence being unleashed by the drug traffickers. There are places like Ciudad Juarez and places like Tijuana and places like Culiacán where it has been very tough. And I'm not going to suggest that you go and sunbathe naked in the main street or thoroughfare of Culiacán. But if you look at what's going on throughout the Mexican territory, it, it, it is, you have pinpointed violence, which is seriously not affecting most of the tourism areas in the rest of the nation. Mexico is a generally safe country. Um, it is a country that heavily depends on its tourism revenues. Um, the beating that we took as a result of the measures uh, that we put in motion to contain H1N1 in terms of tourism revenues has been very tough. If the economy was rosy and peachy, maybe it wouldn't be bad, that bad, but the beating that we've taken with occupancy rates that went down as far down as 8% occupancy rates in the middle of the crisis, it's now fortunately picking back up 45, 55% occupancy rates, depending on where you are. Tourism is coming back because they've realized that not only the situation in terms of the epidemic is, is, is no longer there, but, but also that Mexico is a safe destination. So I would say, as we all do when we travel, be informed, take your precautions, but do the same as you would do in any big city, in any big country, anywhere in the world. We have a question far back, midsection. Hello, my name is Maribel Castillon. I am a public health nurse, and I commend you, uh, Mexico, for their efforts in containing the virus, and I think they did an awesome job. Uh, my comment is on childhood obesity. Uh, the United States has the highest rates of childhood obesity, and unfortunately, the uh, 
racial ethnicities that are affected by this are both Latinos and African American. Uh, Latinos it, within the United States, 60% of them are Mexican. Mexico rates second in the obesity rates. Now, is it possible for the Mexican government to educate Mexican people in telling them that the Western uh, diet is not the right diet and maybe prevent the deaths, the premature deaths that are said to be going to be occurring, which is really sad because today's uh, generation is said to be the first to die before their parents. And the question is, basically, can the Mexican government try to educate its people on trying to prevent this from occurring within Mexico also? Um, I wish I was Sanjay Gupta to provide more scientifically sound comments on this, but yes, obesity is probably one of the largest public health challenges that we face in Mexico and in our transnational cross-border communities. We are blessed, but we're also unfortunate that our two nations love garnachas, tacos, hot dogs, guacamole, hamburgers, because the combination has been lethal. And Mexican migrants who've come to the United States and have taken back on top of the tacos and the garnachas and the sopes, the customs of, and habits of drinking soft drinks. I was about to say a brand and I said, whoops, dangerous here. Soft drinks and junk food uh, has provided, has, has become a, a, a huge challenge. Not only in terms of obesity, but also diabetes, which has gone through the roof in our communities in the United States and back in Mexico. The Mexican government in the past years has been very aggressively pursuing a, a public health policy that will educate and communicate the dangers of the food styles that our community, both here in the United States, and we do this through a program which is a very innovative program called Ventanillas de Salud, that we run in our consulates through the United States by trying to give to our community-based organizations the basics of a healthy diet. And we're also doing this in the schools uh, in Mexico and through public announcements on TV. But it is certainly a huge challenge. It has become one of the most pressing public health challenges that we face in Mexico and with our Mexican and Mexican-American communities in the United States. Uh, hello, my name is Jody Finkel. Good evening, Ambassador, and hi, Pam. Hi. My question has to do with the Mexican Human Rights Ombudsman. Uh, this fall, a new Human Rights Ombudsman will be selected. The current Ombudsman has, been, has done nothing to protect human rights, is severely criticized by Mexican and international human rights activists and organizations. And my question is, if in 2004 the Senate, the PRI, the PAN, the PRD came together to select someone who was weak on human rights, who had no background, what hope do we have that now in 2009 the three major parties in the Senate will do something different in the selection of the new human rights protector? That you and Mexican civil society will insist on how important human rights is for Mexico. And that Mexico continue to do what it has been doing in the international arena which is to subscribe every single possible international human rights treaty, agreement, accord, so that that international legislation can become domestic law.